Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up in this episode, we're going to meet a physicist with a passion for teaching who shares her tips for engaging with students using concepts such as the flipped classroom. She also explains how a bit of fun and a good dose of humor can make physics seem less intimidating. But first, we meet Catherine Hamans, who is Scotland's new Astronomer Royal. Catherine is the first woman to be appointed to this post in its 200-year history. And here she is, speaking to Physics World's Michael Banks about her new role. Well, hi, Catherine. Well, thanks for joining us, and congratulations on becoming Astronomer Royal for Scotland. You must be delighted. I am so excited. <laughs> it's so exciting to be the Astronomer Royal for Scotland. I think it's like dream job. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so tell us how you how did you hear that you got the position? Like, did you is something that you applied for, or were you nominated? Nominated? Did you even know that you were nominated? <laughs> yeah, so I was nominated. So um, Scottish Universities Physics Alliance. There's a, a group of all of the universities in Scotland. They uh, they started thinking about who the next astronomer royal for Scotland should be after, um, sadly, uh, John Brown passed away. They asked the Royal Society of Edinburgh to convene an international panel, and uh, they made a, a short list of astronomers in Scotland and uh, they contacted each of us and asked us what our vision for the Astronomer Royal for Scotland should be. So I, I thought long and hard about what what would I want an Astronomer Royal to do and uh, I thought what I'd really like them to do is to share astronomy with, with everyone and to really encourage more kids to take on science. So I, so I wrote this all down and, and, and sent this back to a panel which included the president of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, the president of the International Astronomy Union, the president of the Institute of Physics, and the um, the ninth astronomer royal for, for for Scotland. So quite an esteemed panel. And um, then, much to my um, delight and and shock, I'll be honest with you, they got back in touch with me <laughs> and said that they really liked my vision and would I like the role. Um, and then they recommended me to the Queen, and I was very delighted that the Queen was happy to accept their recommendation. So there we go. <laughs> Wow. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's been um, really happy to be able to have this job. <laughs> so tell us a little bit, a little bit about the role and what it kind of involves, and also a little bit about what your plans are for it. Yeah, so um, back in the day, the astronomer royals, both for Scotland and and for the UK, you know, their job was right way back when it was how to uh, navigate the oceans by the stars. Um, and then as time went on, it was build an observatory, direct an observatory, discover amazing things. And you know, if I look back at what the previous astronomer royals for Scotland have done, it's, it's phenomenal. They are the mm. founding fathers of astronomy, father being the, <laughs> the key word there. But, you know, now we're in modern astronomy. The role has changed. It's, a, it's an honorary title, which is quite fun for me because it gives me a lot of freedom to decide what I want to do with the role. So. I've got oodles of ideas. I'm really keen to hear from people about what they would like uh, the Astronomer Royal for Scotland to do. Um, but I've decided I'm going to start with my first task of trying to install telescopes at all of our outdoor residentials in Scotland. So I don't know if many people know this, but in Scotland, we have these fantastic um, residential centres for our primary school children. At some point during their primary school, they will spend a week at one of these centres. They go ab sailing and canoeing and gorge walking and <laughs> hill walking in all weathers. It's uh, they're just fantastic places. 
Um, but they tend to be in really remote locations in Scotland. So when the clouds clear, they are a fantastic place for stargazing. And I thought, what a perfect opportunity to really connect these kids with our solar system and beyond by training the staff there to use a decent telescope so the kids can see the moons of Jupiter, the rings of Saturn, if the planets are up, maybe an ancient star cluster almost as old as the universe itself. And how many, do you know how many telescopes that that might involve? (laughs) There are a lot of these residential centres, as I'm sure you can imagine, because there are a lot of children in Scotland. I'm going to start off with a pilot scheme. So I'm already connected with the two centres where my children went (laughs) when they were in primary school. And we're going to run a pilot scheme for about a year just to see how it works. Um, The piece of kit that we're planning to use is going to be really robust because I'm sure you can imagine lots of very excited kids running around in the dark. (laughs) We need something that's not going to break. So we're going to test it out with that pilot centre. And if that works, then I am going to be doing a massive fundraising campaign to get telescopes uh, in all of our centres. But uh, everyone I've talked to about it has gone like, oh, my God, that's such a great idea. Because, you know, normally when we put on observing events for the public, you know, we have to say it's going to be on this night. And sure enough, that night the clouds will come over and there's nothing we can do. And so this is an amazing opportunity to reach almost all of the school children in Scotland in a remote site. They're there for a whole week. Scotland's weather isn't that bad. <laughs> the, clear, the clouds <laughs> should clear at least once during that week. So they have the opportunity to firsthand see what, what they've seen you know, their whole lives in books and on TV mm. to actually see it with their own eyes. Right. And, and do you expect to use the position in any way to kind of campaign on certain issues? I mean, you mentioned there about clear skies. You know, we've stories in the news recently about, say, the SpaceX constellation and how that's kind of impacting astronomers, for example. I mean, do you see that? Do you see the role there as as, as being a figurehead in terms yes, of Yes, absolutely, um, absolutely. No, I'm here to represent astronomers in Scotland and, and indeed the whole of the UK. And um, that's both the amateur astronomy and the professional astronomy community. And all, all astronomers are, are having problems with these massive space constellation, these satellites that are going up. You know, anyone who's doing even the, the most basic of astronomical imaging are having their gorgeous images of deep space objects completely wiped out by these satellites going past. So, And one of the projects I'm working on at the moment is the Vera Rubin Observatory. Um, where we are going to be imaging the entire night sky on repeat every three nights for 10 years. Now, these are deep observations. And at the rate that these satellites are being launched at the moment, we're basically going to have to throw away a third to a half of our data, which is right. awful. Now, these these satellites, you know, it's I love the idea of being able to have fast broadband across the whole world. You know, how fantastic would it be if Africa could be properly linked up and connected with the rest of the world? For for, for developing countries around the world, this is fantastic. But the way that they are organising these satellites in such low orbit in order to get very, very hyper fast broadband for financial transactions, you know, that's 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 got nothing to do with broadband in Africa. You know, you, you can put these satellites a much higher orbit, you, then you need much fewer of them, and you still get that benefit for developing countries. So the way that this is being set up, which seems to be purely for the financial sector to have, to have that extra mm. millisecond of speed on making their financial transactions and gaming the system, to ruin and pollute our skies just for that capital benefit seems 
just plain wrong. So yes, I am absolutely joining the campaign to stop this sky pollution. But it's not just the satellites. You know, if you if you think of our urban locations as well, um, I haven't got the statistics for the whole of the UK, but um, 85% of Scotland's population lives in the central belt. Um, so that goes sort of from Edinburgh across to Glasgow. And, you know, that whole central belt has a lot of light pollution. Now, that doesn't mean in, in the central belt you can't still go out and enjoy the stars. You know, the planets you'll always be able to see and the moon's always gorgeous. But, you know, contrast where most of Scotland lives with our dark sky parks in the Cairngorms and the Galloway, where it's so dark, you can see the Milky Way spiral arm. You know, if you can give people that experience of really looking out into the night sky, it really connects them with the universe. And it's such a special experience that the majority of our population never get the chance to experience. So, uh, so yes, mm. I will absolutely be petitioning for this. <laughs> You mentioned there about you know looking at the night sky and how you know awe inspiring that is. I mean, what inspired you in particular to go into astrophysics? And yeah, so I think if you ask um, any academic, in fact, most people, if you ask them what inspired them to do what they're doing, they'll probably tell you it's to do with a teacher. Um, I'm a big <laughs> fan of teachers. I'm especially a big fan of teachers after spending more than half of the last year homeschooling my own children. Oh my god, teachers are just the best thing in the world, and I for sure had some fantastic teachers. There was one teacher in particular who in the summer went off on a NASA program for teachers. She came back just full of awesome facts about space, which we would then try and get her to uh, tell us and not teach us some of the maybe dry <laughs> physics that we were learning on that particular day. Uh, so <laughs> she was very sly though because always the, the cool space fact she was telling us was actually related to the physics that we were trying to get out of learning so <laughs> um but yeah I think teachers are so special and that's another thing I really want to do is you know how can we as academics and scientists how can we help teachers share that passion and uh, excitement and awe of of science and, and the universe how can we help teachers share that with all of the school children um, in the UK yeah I mean you yourself you're the first woman then to hold this position as astronomer role for Scotland so you know how, how do you kind of plan to pass that inspiration that you have onto others like you say like school children for example yeah I think it's really hard to aspire to be something if everyone you see who's doing that job doesn't look like you so, you know, I was saying at the start, these astronomer royals for Scotland were the founding fathers. So mm. it's really nice to have a woman in this role now so people can say, oh, you know, oh, look, there's a female astronomer as well. Equality in, in, in physics is, is getting better. We see more and more women um, staying in, in sciences. Um, but it's, it's nowhere near equal. You know, with, mm. I always say you know, that science is the best job in the world because we get to ask questions that nobody knows the answers to. And then we get to design the experiments to answer those questions. But we really need to hear all the different voices that there are to, to, to answer these questions because you know, <laughs> we don't know the answers to that. Are we alone in the universe? Um, where did the universe come from? You know, where are we going? These are major big questions. And if we just have sort of one culture or you know, one privileged position to try and answer these questions we, we're never going to see the answer you know if you, if you look at Einstein he didn't come from a, a standard academic background yet he mm. completely revolutionized and turned on our heads how we how we view gravity um, so we need to make science uh, welcoming and inclusive 
space for everyone to join in because we're not going to be able to make those major groundbreaking discoveries if we don't have lots of different voices coming at a problem in from different directions because that's how we make progress by listening to each other and, and thinking about things in lots of different ways. That's great. Well, thanks for joining us and um, all the best in your in the new position. And we uh, definitely look forward to seeing um, what initiatives you come up with as Astronomer Royal for Scotland. So thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much. <laughs> that was Catherine Haymans in conversation with Michael Banks. Teaching physics to students who are intimidated by the subject can be a challenge. The physicist Joanne O'Meara has been on both sides of the lectern. First, as a high school student who initially struggled with physics, and then as a professor at Canada's University of Guelph. Joanne talks to Physics World's Laura Hiscott about how she developed her teaching skills and how fun demonstrations like a smoothie race can help break the ice. I'm joined down the line by Joanne O'Meara, who is a professor of physics at the University of Guelph in Canada. Joanne has recently written an article about how she uses humour in teaching physics to motivate her students. Welcome to the podcast, Joanne. Thanks very much, Laura. It's great to be here. So a lot of people say that teachers have been some of the most influential people in their lives, and I certainly feel that having great physics teachers inspired me to study the subject. Do you have any standout memories of teachers that influenced you? Yeah, actually. Um, so in high school, so I went to school in Toronto, uh, Ontario, Canada, which is about uh, 100 kilometers east of where I am now. Um, and in Ontario, we do two courses in physics in high school before we go to university, uh, one in our second last year, one in our last year. Um, and my experience in my second last year was horrible, <laughs> honestly, oh, no. just somehow felt like I didn't get it. And um, I always felt kind of a little bit like an idiot. Um, and and it really was it didn't seem like it was for me. And then in my last year, I had a different teacher and he was a huge influence on me. He was actually a new teacher, but was doing it as a second career, had worked as an engineer for many years and was coming to teaching uh, later oh, in life. Right. And uh, he was just such a breath of fresh air. Um, he had such a different approach and such a passion uh -huh. for, for the subject. Really sparked an interest in, in physics for me, for sure. Wow. So that really influenced you to go down that path and continue studying it. It did, although in first year I still thought, so I went to McMaster in Hamilton um, and in Ontario as well, and, and I still thought in first year that I probably was going to go into biology, biological sciences, and at the uh, Christmas break, um, my, one of my physics professors suggested that, that I apply for uh, a scholarship program for summer job, which I got, and then I worked with um, a professor in the Department of Physics at McMaster. Uh -huh. who was another huge role model in my life. He ended up being my PhD supervisor and was a huge confidence booster for me that this was something that I should consider pursuing. And, and so, yeah, he had a big role in my future career as well. Wow, definitely having that confidence boost can really make all the difference. Absolutely. And speaking of which, actually, a lot of people do feel quite intimidated by maths and science subjects. So I was interested in 
um, any ways you can think of that teachers can use to make them seem less scary? Yeah, this is a real pet peeve of mine, really, um, <laughs> because I think sometimes we maybe kind of like the idea that people think that physics is hard and and that you have uh. to be super smart to be good at it. Um, and and that kind of really drives me crazy because I think, uh, you know, this is a field that I love and and I want people to know a little bit about it and find uh -huh. the fascination in it that I find as well. So I think just being passionate and enthusiastic and encouraging um, are really important uh, in both in high school and in, in the early years of university. Yeah, that makes sense. So letting people know that you don't have to be the cleverest person in the world in order to understand something about physics and absolutely enjoy it. And absolutely. And I mean, it's everywhere around us. I mean, just about anything you can think of in your everyday life, there's some element of physics. Um, and I think uh -huh. it's not, uh, it doesn't need to be so mysterious. And it can really enrich people's lives as well to to have that understanding of things happening in the world around them. Absolutely. I was interested as well in when you started to head down the path of academia, how did you feel about the teaching and the lecturing aspects that would come along with that? Yeah, it's funny you should ask that. Um, so when I, I did my PhD at McMaster and then I went to Boston to do a postdoc for a couple of years. And which was a great experience um, and very traditional kind of academic path. In between, actually, I had the chance to teach for a semester um, at Bermuda College in Bermuda, filling in for someone who was on maternity leave. Um, so I had I had no training. <laughs> I was just kind of <laughs> thrown in and here you go, teach a couple <laughs> of courses. Um, but I loved it and I had loved my teaching experience as a grad student. And when I was a postdoc in Boston, uh, there was no teaching element. It was 100% research. And I found that I really missed um, the teaching component. I started volunteering with a local uh, tutoring group to help kids, you know, very little kids in, in math and science. Uh -huh. um, but I really felt I missed that teaching piece. And I thought I was actually going to leave the academic route or, you know, post-secondary route. And I applied to Teachers College and I was accepted and I was about to go and become uh -huh. a high school physics teacher. And then uh, there was a position that opened up at McMaster, a tenure track faculty position and I applied and got it and I still get to do the teaching and I love it and I get to do it at the post-secondary level rather than the secondary level so it all worked uh -huh. out in the end but um, the teaching piece was a huge draw for me in the oh, academic wow. field. That's really interesting that was something you were looking forward to about the academic job. I know it's not often the, always the case I guess that that people um, are drawn to uh, a tenure track position for the teaching but for me, that was absolutely a very important piece. And um, how did you develop your teaching style? Did you have any specific training courses or anything in it when you uh, started your academic job? Not really. Uh, like most people <laughs> in post-secondary, there's no really formalized training. Um, so as I mentioned, right after my PhD, I taught for a semester at Bermuda College, and that truly was trial by fire. I arrived on the mm -hmm. island like a week before classes started and <laughs> and wow. just trying to get yourself oriented in a new place and and um yeah and start teaching and doing the labs and all of that so that was a lot of on the job experience right there um i did have some great mentors at bermuda college um i was the only physicist so i didn't have any physics specific mentors but i had some great people who were there to uh -huh. kind of help me 
learn the ropes um, and give some advice. And then um, once I started at Guelph, I had some amazing mentors in the department and also our uh, professional our professional organization in Canada, the Canadian Association of Physicists. We have a division of physics education. And at the annual Congress every year, there's um, a lot of great workshops run by the Division of Physics Education on, um, you know, pedagogy and all kinds of things about teaching and learning specific to physics. So that has been a real help as well. Well, you mentioned that you had some great mentors. Um, So did you kind of sit in and listen to how they taught or did you go to them with questions you had or... Yeah, it was more going to them with questions and having regular discussions about what we were Uh doing. So in my first semester teaching at Guelph, one of the courses I was teaching, I was team teaching with one of my mentors, Ernie McFarland, who uh, is now retired, but um, was kind of the the physics teaching guru in our department for many, many Uh years. So I was team teaching with him, which was honestly the best way to start because you know, we would sit down once a week and go through, okay, what are we covering this week? How are we going to do it? He'd give me tips on some of the demos he likes to use. He's a big demo guy. Um, so I've learned, I learned a lot directly from Ernie in, in lots of chats. Um, so that was, that was hugely beneficial for sure. Uh-huh. Well, and you mentioned the pedagogy side of it. You mentioned this idea of a flipped classroom. Um, could you explain a little bit more about what that is? Sure. Yeah. So a flipped classroom is the idea that um, you're trying to encourage students to take a little bit more ownership of of their learning in that you ask them to watch some videos or do some reading on the subject that you're going to talk about in class that day. Uh, I usually incentivize that a little bit with uh, a reading quiz um, that isn't worth very much, uh, but is just kind of checking and making sure that you did the reading. Uh Um, and so then when you come to class, you're a little bit ready to have some, um, informed discussions and do some activities based on the concept that we're talking about that day. Um, and so the class time we can use more to kind of guide you in helping you fill the gaps that you hopefully have identified, um, before coming to class through the reading and the videos. Um, So through activities worked on together with your fellow students or activities that we work through together as a class with me, we look to try and fill those gaps. And it's it's an idea that's been around for a little bit as known as the flipped classroom. But honestly, it's a concept that's been around for decades. Um, Back in the 60s and 70s, there was a, a movement called personalized system of instruction, and it was the same sort of idea, obviously, without the technology um, that we have today, but the same sort of idea of here's the material you need to learn for this unit and, you know, we'll help you get there. But this is all you need to kind of do it um, at your own pace in your own way. So that's sort of the premise behind the flip class. Uh Wow, that's really interesting. I was wondering if you had a specific example at all of an activity that you would use um, yeah, so uh, back in the fall, I was teaching uh, our second year undergraduate physics majors in the first uh, half of the electricity and magnetism course that they take in second year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so an example, we would work through a problem where we calculate the electric field near a finite line of charge, um, not directly over the center of it, but you know some other random position near this line of charge. And then uh, once we've worked through the problem and solved the integral, then I'd give them a question where I've established what the integrals are for a different scenario, but similar, um, and then ask them to, 
to, from that integral, extract what is the geometry of this particular situation? Is this aligned with the x-axis? Is it aligned with y-axis? Is it neither? What's the length of it? Is it centered over the origin? All of those kinds of things. So that it's sort of this check your understanding. Okay, you just saw me work through a problem. Can you now extract similar information from a similar problem that has Uh, a slight twist to it? uh And take that and apply it to a different scenario. Exactly. As well as teaching physics undergraduates, you also teach introductory physics courses to undergraduates who are studying other subjects. Um, Are there differences in how you approach teaching these two groups? Yeah. So as as I was saying before, I think a major um, challenge is this notion that a lot of people come at physics with, I'm not smart enough. Um, I can't do this. This is really hard. And so I spend a lot of energy and time and and thought in teaching uh, first year biology students around how can I convince them otherwise. Um, so a lot of what I try to do with, with that sort of cohort is to bring in as many um, examples of everyday life that they may have encountered when we're talking about a particular scenario, as we were talking about before. Like if we're talking about resonance, maybe we'll talk about swings at the park or you know, if we're talking about friction and things sliding. Maybe instead of using a boring example of a block on a table, maybe I'll talk about a penguin sliding across, you know, a sheet of ice and throw in a fun little gif in class to, you know, make people smile. It's, we do a lot of examples where we try and bring in demos as well into class. So whenever we do a demonstration, I always do it from a predict, observe, explain approach. So I I explain the demonstration we're going to do. I get the students to think about what they think is going to happen. Then we do the demonstration and then we talk about what they saw and explain it. So one that we like to do in class when we're talking about resistors in circuits um, is we do something we call the smoothie race. So I get a nice thick smoothie and I split it into two cups and I get two student volunteers um, and one of them gets two straws in parallel and one of them gets two straws that have been taped together in series. And so we have a a guess as to who's going to be able finish their smoothie first and then they have the race and then we talk about afterwards and kind of make that connection between current and electrical potential difference and resistors in series and resistors in parallel and and it's fun and you know gets people (laughs) cheering and and uh two kids get to drink a smoothie in class so it's all good yeah i'm sure you get a lot of volunteers for that (laughs) I, i definitely do yeah do you have any more stories about incorporating humor in the classroom um, yeah, so I teach uh, a course to our physics majors called Science Communication. Um, it's a required course of our students. Uh, we spend a lot of time in our program helping them develop their ability to communicate very formally and to peers and to collaborators, but we don't spend a lot of time teaching them how to communicate with different audiences, and we feel that that's an important skill. So we've created this course, um, which is all about helping them develop those communication skills for broader audiences. Um, And it's not a course that they come into (laughs) particularly excited about at the beginning of this semester offered because they're a little bit nervous about, I mean, most people are nervous about the idea of public speaking. So to break up that uh, hesitation, I use improv. So we do um, a whole session 
at the very beginning of the semester of improv exercises um, together as a class that are very low risk activities, low stakes. Um, I don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable or, you know, put them put being put on in a spotlight or anything like that. So uh-huh. we do a whole bunch of exercises together. Um, and then we have some other activities that if we have any brave volunteers to do them, then we'll work through those too. Um, uh-huh. And at, at the beginning, the students are really like, did you just say we're going to do improv and not, <laughs> not yeah. very excited about the idea. But by the end of the session, um, they do see the, the, the point of helping them feel more comfortable with each other and with me. Everything about improv is about listening and reading the audience um, uh-huh. and, and interacting in the moment. And that's really what we're trying to do with the course. So uh, the last time I taught it, we ended up doing uh, a quick little improv exercise every, every single session. Um, after that first session throughout the rest of the semester because they just found it was a fun way to start off the class and really helped kind of maintain that that level of comfort through the semester with sharing their ideas and and doing the presentations that they needed to do semester and did they find that they became less nervous and got more used to it as it went on absolutely um the feedback i've had from students in that course is that it has been a huge um, benefit to them in their other courses where they've had to do a seminar or um, do a poster presentation that they've found that um, doing so many uh, exercises where they've had to get up in front of the rest of the room or had to get up in front of a small group of students in the in the rest of the room is really uh, ease their fear. And uh-huh. really, that just makes sense. I mean, everything, everything you do, you get better at with practice. The last thing I wanted to ask, since we've been talking about humour and teaching physics, um, was do you have a favourite physics joke at all? <laughs> um, they're all kind of pretty corny. <laughs> they are, <laughs> like yes. Yeah. I've heard. Um, I, the, the one that kind of sticks in my mind is a neutron walks into a bar uh-huh. and orders a pint. And then when it's time to go and needs to settle up, she says to the bartender, what do I owe you? And the bartender replies, for you, no charge. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Yep. <laughs> Actually reminds me of an idea a friend of mine and I had a couple of years ago for a book all about the science of everyday life, which we would call a physicist walks into a bar. And then all oh. of the things that you talk about in the book are everyday science examples that you would encounter in the pub. Anything about, oh. you know, uh, carbonation versus nitrogenation or how coffee sloshes in a cup compared to how beer with a nice thick foam head on it sloshes in a cup. Um, you could talk about foods, right? You could talk about yeah, yeah. Um, the Brazil nut effect. You could talk about uh, the Leidenfrost effect. You could talk about how deep fryers work. Um, you could talk about entertainment, right? All kinds uh-huh. of bar tricks that you can do. Uh, billiards, like all kinds of how black lights work. I mean, there'd be tons of things you could talk about. And then each heading, you could start with a different punchline to your physicist walks into a bar joke. Like you could have for the food section, it could be and orders fission chips. <laughs> that's yeah that's a really right? good one <laughs> yeah <laughs> so anyway someday maybe maybe on my next sabbatical maybe we'll get around to trying to put that book together <laughs> that would certainly be a good way of getting people interested in physics i think thanks for being on the podcast joanne 
You can read Joanne's article in the essay collection Teaching Physics with a Sense of Humour, as well as in the June issue of Physics World and online. Thanks for being on the podcast, Joanne. Thanks so much. It was my pleasure. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Catherine Haymans, Joanne O'Meara, Michael Banks, and Laura Hiscott for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Callum Jelf. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, please do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, which looks at what scientists can do to improve the ethics of artificial intelligence systems. The podcast title is The Bots Are Not As Fair-Minded As They Seem, and it can be found in the podcast section of the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.